Welcome to the Grace Point Podcast, a ministry of Grace Point Church for Scythe in Cumming, Georgia. To find out more about Grace Point Church, you can go to our website at gpcga.org. That's gpcga.org. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 23 through 28. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with those rites, with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as a high priest enters the holy places every year with the blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Father, what a joy it is to continue to to hear about how Christ brings about the new covenant and how the old covenant was a shadow of the new covenant pointing forward to the glory and the wonder and the awe that Christ brings. As we dive into this text, Father, we pray that you would help us not only to understand this text with our minds, but to hide these truths in our hearts that we can take comfort when we struggle, that we would work out with our hands in rejoicing, in response to the great good news of the gospel, that Jesus is our great high priest and died once for all for our sin. In Christ's precious name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Some of you may have something like this at your house. A little countdown thing. I don't think Melissa even knew I took this from the house this morning. You know, six days left, five days left, et cetera, et cetera. Or maybe you have an advent calendar where you're opening doors every day and, and getting down to the end where Christmas Eve comes. We are almost at Christmas. Schools are starting to let out for the break. Presents are starting to pile up under the tree. The countdown is on. We're less than 10 days away. Kids all around the world are eagerly awaiting Christmas morning. Each day they grow more excited in anticipation of that celebration. And let's face it, in anticipation of the gifts they're going to get and how excited they are for those. And we all know the feeling of anticipation and joy that we have as we receive and open gifts on Christmas morning. We have that joy from both receiving and giving gifts, from seeing the joy on other people's faces, from getting what we want and being together with family. We're thankful for the gift and the heart of a giver. But we also know that the greatest gift we will ever receive is the gospel is the truth that we are sinners who cannot save ourselves. For the wages of sin is death. Everything that we do is tainted because of our sinful nature. 
We're constantly turning away from God, and so we can't do enough to be made right with Him. But that verse didn't end there, did it? But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Better than anything that we'll receive here, better than anything we'll use here, better than any memory we will have is the fact that God has promised us that we will be with him throughout all eternity, basking in his presence. Now the, reverse, the effects of sin will be reversed. This gospel, this promise will not break, will not rust, will not become less, will not become something that we don't want anymore. Instead, it is the greatest gift there is. And as we have seen throughout the book of Hebrews, Christ and the new covenant, which includes the gospel, this good news of Christ's death on our behalf, surpass in every way God's previous care and provision for his people, what we've been calling the old covenant. The law given to help us understand who God is and how we are supposed to deal with our sin. And as David McWilliams, a commentator, says, so far in chapter 9, we've seen the efficacious sacrifice of Christ in verse 14. His sacrifice is effective. We've seen the power of Christ's blood to be able to remove sin in verses 15, 16, and 17. We've seen the necessity of Christ's shed blood in order to establish the new covenant in 18, 19, 20, and 21. We talked about that last week about how that new covenant starts with that sacrifice. And so today, as we continue in Hebrews, as we finish out chapter 9 and wrap up this concept of redemption through the blood of Christ, we're going to see three things. We're going to look specifically at the perfection of Christ's sacrifice and see that in three ways. Number one, we're going to see that Christ's sacrifice is the basis of his representation of us in heaven. Right now, he is sitting at the right hand of the throne of God, interceding for us. And his sacrifice is the reason he can do that. We'll see that in verses 23 and 24. Number two, we'll see Christ's sacrifice has put away our sin forever. Verses 25 and 26. And number three, we'll see Christ's sacrifice secures our favorable verdict with God. Christ's sacrifice is the basis of his representation of us in heaven. Christ's sacrifice has put away sin forever. And Christ's sacrifice secures our profitable, our favorable verdict with God. So let's look first at how, in verses 23 and 24, Christ's sacrifice is the basis of his representation of us in heaven. Now, we've already seen that heaven is the model for the earthly sanctuaries. Remember, we talked about how the tabernacle, when God gave Moses the instructions for the tabernacle, he said, this is but a shadow of the real tabernacle. And we've talked as we've gone through Hebrews about how because it's just a shadow and not the actual tabernacle, because it was made by human sinful hands, it had to be purified. But it had to be shed, it had to be cleansed, it had to be made ready for service. And we've said that there's a heavenly sanctuary that does not need those things. Look at verse 23. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices 
than these. It's interesting that that word sacrifices is used. It's, it's plural. That shows that Christ's one sacrifice fulfills all of the sacrifices of the old system or of the old covenant. John Brown said, the, bull, the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of a heifer, which we've talked about, may expiate ceremonial guilt and may secure external temporary blessings. But in order to the expiation of moral guilt and the attainment of spiritual and eternal blessings, a nobler victim must bleed. He's basically saying, under the old covenant, when we had the blood of goats and bulls, the ashes of the heifer, those things we've talked about, those give us ceremonial guilt cleansing. They secure temporary blessings. But in order for us to have the perfect atonement, the spiritual and eternal blessings, something better has to bleed. Leviticus 17, verse 11, talks about how blood makes atonement by life. In Leviticus, great book to read, by the way. I don't know if I've ever said that. Love Leviticus. If you understand Leviticus, Christ's sacrifice becomes so much more glorious and beautiful. So Leviticus 16 talks about the Day of Atonement, which we've been saying again and again, that, that yearly celebration where animals had to be shed in order to deal with the sins of the people. And in 17, it continues to talk about how those happen. And in verse 11, it says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you, I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Blood has to be shed, life has to be given to make atonement. But the rituals that we see in Leviticus 16, these day of atonement, the rituals that we see in the old covenant, the old system, are all pointing forward to a better sacrifice. We've said this again and again as shadows of the things to come. What they do is they show us that there's got to be something better. They go every single year and they shed that blood. There's got to be something better. There's got to be a way so that this doesn't have to continue. And that way came through Christ. We see that the heavenly things themselves are purified. We saw that in verse, at the end of verse 23. Now that sounds a little confusing, as though the things in heaven have to be purified as though they're simple as well. That's not what that means. That phrase is a way of saying that the blood of Christ opens the way to God for us. The blood of Christ provides for our approach to God. And the blood of Christ gives free access to God, an access we can't get on our own. Christ entered heaven as our representative. And now heaven is set aside, sanctified, and purified for our future rest there. Look at verse 24. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Think about those last three words, on our behalf. When we think about Jesus and we think about Christmas and Easter, a lot of times we end the story of Jesus with his life, his death, and his resurrection. We're like, yeah, great, ta-da. It's not over. 
Jesus right now is sitting at God's right hand interceding for us regularly. He is praying for us. He is lifting us up. He loves us. And he's making us ready for when he comes back the second time. All of the truth and the beauty of the old covenant's purification that we saw in Leviticus 16 is fulfilled in Jesus. After Jesus, no more sacrifices need to be made. In Jesus, who is our great high priest, we have free access into the sanctuary of heaven. I, I just love how Hebrews is connecting us back to what those people would have seen and would have known. There was no free access for God's people under the old covenant. Only the priests could go into the sanctuary. Only the priests could go into the tabernacle or the temple. And only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies in the presence of God. We common people would have had no hope for that. But because of Christ's blood, now we have access to the Lord. What a glorious, amazing truth. We have access to God. James Thornwell said this, the imperfection which attaches to our performances, our pollution and weakness and unbelief. So when we do things, we have pollution, we have weakness, we have unbelief. That imperfection stops with the high priest, the high priest, Jesus. Jesus or his intercession and atonement covers all defects and we are faultless and complete in him. Isn't that incredible? Jesus' intercession and atonement cover everything that's wrong with us. And in God's eyes, because we are in Jesus, we are faultless and complete. The prayer which reaches the ear of the Almighty is from him and not from us and must be as prevalent as his worth. Here is our confidence. Not only that Jesus died, but that Jesus lives. That he is our intercessor, the one praying for us in the heavenly sanctuary. You see, this is that connection that we have from last week. We kept talking about how the tabernacle and the temple were the earthly sanctuaries, which were shadows of the heavenly sanctuary. And we kept talking about that heavenly sanctuary and how Christ goes up into that. And here we see how glorious that is. Just as the old covenant had the high priest going into the earthly sanctuary to make atonement for sins, Jesus, the perfect great high priest, has gone into the heavenly sanctuary and is praying for us right now, has made atonement for our sins. He is our intercessor in the heavenly sanctuary, and there he presents, enforces, and sanctifies the religious worship on earth. Here is our confidence that in the whole process of salvation, God regards the Redeemer and not us, and deals out blessings according to his estimate of Christ. Here is our confidence that if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. What an encouragement and praise. God doesn't see your sinful self 
when he looks at you as a believer, he sees Christ's perfection. And he blesses you according to Christ's perfection, not what you've earned. Because brothers and sisters, we don't want what we have earned. A lot of us think we are good. That's what society tries to push us to. It says, be good, be moral, and you'll earn your place in heaven. The only thing we have earned, as Romans 6.23 says, is death. But by believing in Christ, by trusting in him, and the things that he has done, when God looks at us, he sees Jesus. And because he sees Jesus, we receive the blessings that are owed to Jesus. Holy cow, that's incredible. What a promise. And so Christ's sacrifice is the basis of his representation of us in heaven. He is right now in that heavenly sanctuary praying for us, and he can do that because he shed his own blood on our behalf. In 25 and 26, we see that Christ's sacrifice has put away our sins forever. Not only has his death allowed him to go into the sanctuary and pray for us and be our advocate, but his sin and his, or his sacrifice has dealt with our sins forever. An essential point in Christ's sacrifice is that sin is forever dealt with. This is important because under the old covenant, every year, they had to make sacrifices for those sins. Sin was not forever dealt with. Sin was temporarily dealt with. And then it was temporarily dealt with again. And then it was temporarily dealt with again. And again. And again. And again. But through Jesus, his sacrifice, our sin is dealt with forever. No more blood has to be shed. We see in verses 25 and 26 this contrast between the old covenant with its repeated offerings and the new covenant where Jesus died once and for all. Look at 25 and 26. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest who enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. That's talking about the Day of Atonement, how that high priest every year repeatedly goes in there and takes blood. That's not the high priest's, it's blood of animals. Verse 26, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The old covenant, the old ways had this repeated sacrifice. And it wasn't a perfect sacrifice either. As we've already said, it doesn't deal with the spiritual sin that we have. It's a temporary fix at best, looking forward to Jesus. Jesus, once for all, died. That, that phrase is so important because it's a direct contrast to what they were used to. In Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement, they're used to again and again and again. That's just the way they knew. But when he says, once for all, Jesus died, that makes the cross of Christ the center point of history. Nobody cares about the 32nd Day of Atonement. Nobody cares about the 1,756th Day of Atonement because there was going to have to be a 1,757th. But that one death on the cross was it. That is the moment 
where all of the promises of the Old Testament come into fulfillment. And from that moment on, we know that we have that perfect sacrifice. We know that Christ, through his cross, is the center of history because that cross's purpose was for Christ to put away our sin, to pay our debt. Nothing was left undone. After the Day of Atonement, the next day, the day after the Day of Atonement, those sins now were new and weren't paid for anymore. And so that's why we had to have another Day of Atonement. But with Christ's death, the sins that have been committed, the sins that are being committed right now, and the sins that will be committed are dealt with. Christ's blood was enough once for all. Nothing has been left undone. The Old Testament law showed the need for deliverance. The Day of Atonement showed us that, that we had to have blood shed for our sins. This sin couldn't just be left out there. It had to be dealt with. But that blood was not enough. It couldn't save us from our sin. The law could condemn, but it could not save. The reason the cross is the climactic event in all of redemptive history is because Jesus could and did save. He fulfilled completely the sacrificial system, and his death started the new covenant era, where through faith in him, we can be adopted into God's family. An exchange was necessary for our sin, and those sacrifices didn't cut it. And Christ took care of our sin on the cross. Praise the Lord. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. And so verses 23 and 24 showed us that Christ's sacrifice is the basis of his representation of us in heaven. That's how he got into the heavenly sanctuary. Verses 25 and 26 show us that Christ's sacrifice dealt with our sin forever. And then 27 and 28 show us that Christ's sacrifice secures our favorable verdict with God. Because remember we said when God looks at us, he sees Jesus and he awards us according to Jesus. That was secured on the cross. And the author uses a comparison of man and God. He says, man dies once and is judged. Christ dies once and is the salvation for his people. And so he structures his, center, his sentences as he often has to make this stark comparison. Okay, man dies and this happens. Christ dies and, wait, this doesn't happen. Something else happens. Look at verses 27 and 28. Just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Salvation comes through Jesus because Jesus' death takes the punishment that is due to us. When we die, we will be judged. Praise the Lord. As those who believe in Christ, our sins are dealt with by his death on the cross. Now, we'll still, those sins are still, uh, have still been committed and still need to be dealt with, but Jesus did that on the cross. Jesus died once, and through that death, our salvation is secure. 
This is really important because you remember, in the context of the book of Hebrews, those who that the author is writing to are suffering, they're being persecuted, and they're tempted to go back to the old system. They're tempted to go back to Judaism because there wasn't punishment there and things made sense. They didn't have to think about how much they were sinning because they knew the Day of Atonement would deal with that. They had a lack of understanding of what Jesus had done. And so they're like, I just want to go back to the way it was. They were tempted to go back to the old covenant, but they were missing the entire point of the old covenant. The old covenant wasn't there to bring comfort, which is what they were going for. You know, hey, we're suffering. Let's go back to where we weren't anymore. The old covenant there was, was there to point to Jesus. And now that Jesus is here, there's no reason to go back because Jesus is perfect because Jesus has done what we can't do. Jesus has done what all of that blood shed couldn't do. Jesus has done what all of those sacrifices could not do. Jesus has died once and for all. It is finished. Period. The author's like, don't go back there. That was your preview. That was insufficient. That was not enough. Jesus is enough. Commentator Philip Hughes makes an astounding statement. He says, To refuse the cross as the instrument of salvation is to choose the cross as the instrument of judgment. Ooh, yikes. Jesus is better. And when you want to go back to something that's old, when you want to go back to something that wasn't complete and trust in that instead of Jesus, you're not receiving the better things that Jesus brings. Not only was the cross the center point of history, not only was Jesus better as a sacrifice and better as a high priest, but Jesus will return. Christ died, Christ rose. Christ ascended and intercedes, and Christ will come again. That's why Advent is so significant. Advent is not just about Jesus' birth. It's about the anticipation of his coming. Yes, we celebrate and remember his first coming when he came as a baby to live the life we couldn't live, to die the death that we deserve, to rise again, defeating death, and to, to be at God's right hand. We do remember that. But we also look forward to one day he's coming again. And that day will be glorious. Because that's the day when all things will be perfected and we'll be with the Lord. I love the imagery of the Old Testament. And we see a peak of it here. In the Old Testament, on the Day of Atonement, we all have talked about that over and over again. Sacrifices were made on behalf of the people. If you go back and read, you see the concept of the scapegoat sent out into the wilderness. The high priest goes into the tabernacle and then into the Holy of Holies and spreads the blood on the altar. And you remember, he actually went in with a rope tied around him. Because if he wasn't ready, if he wasn't purified, if something was still there staining, it could not exist in God's presence. And so the people are outside the tabernacle or the sanctuary or the temple, depending on when in Old Testament history we are, the people are outside when this is happening. They watch as the sacrifice is made. They watch as the blood is carried into the sanctuary and they wait with bated breath 
Because if the high priest is able to go into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle blood on the Ark of the Covenant and come back out, when he walks back out those doors, that's a visible sign to the people that the Lord has accepted the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. And so they're waiting with bated breath outside the sanctuary to see, will the high priest come back out? Will God accept our sacrifices? And when he did, there was a time of rejoicing. They were anticipating his coming out to make sure that the Lord had dealt with their sin. And when he came out, they can rejoice because they know that their sin is dealt with. His coming out of the sanctuary was evidence that the sacrifice of atonement had been accepted. They anticipated his coming out and they rejoiced when he came out. Now, Jesus has gone into the heavenly sanctuary. He is interceding on our behalf. And we, like the Old Testament people, are waiting in anticipation for him to come out of that sanctuary, to come back the second time and to draw us up into the Lord's presence. We, too, are anticipating and excited to see the Lord. Revelation 22 Verse 20, the second to last verse of the Bible says, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. That should be our heart's cry at Advent. You are in the sanctuary interceding in our behalf. Come, Lord Jesus. Perfect all the things that are imperfect and take away the sin that we struggle with. Bring us up into the Lord's presence that we may begin our hope of eternity with you. No more suffering, no more crying, no more pain anymore. David McWilliams said, Jesus came the first time to bear our sins. He will return to receive his reward. Jesus came the first time bowing under the awful burden of the cross. When he returns, all the world will bow to him. He came at first to inaugurate the new covenant. He will return to consummate the new covenant. He came at first as a man of sorrows. He comes again to laugh and rejoice with his people in trial. Advent is us standing outside the sanctuary waiting for Christ to come back, knowing that right now, even as he is in the sanctuary, he's interceding on our behalf. He has already paid the blood price for our sins once and for all. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. So Christmas is almost here. When we see the joy and the anticipation in the hearts and faces of kids waiting for Christmas Day, we see this countdown every day and the excitement grow more and more. It should serve to us as a reminder of the joy and anticipation we have because of Jesus. Knowing that Christ's sacrifice has done so much for us, knowing that it's the basis of our, our uh, Christ's representation for us in heaven, 
knowing that it has put away our sin forever, knowing that it secures our favorable verdict with God. Our hearts are filled with joy and anticipation, not just for Advent, but throughout the year. It's funny because when I made the decision to continue preaching through Hebrews, I did it with an eye towards Hebrews is so filled with Jesus you can't help but talk about him during Advent season as opposed to doing a separate Advent uh, series. And I got to this text and I thought, wow, what an excellent Advent text reminding us that Jesus is coming back. Reminding us that Jesus has done everything that has to be done. Reminding us of the glory of the gospel through Jesus. And so I pray for us that these assurances from Christ's once-for-all sacrifice will draw us into awe, wonder, joy, thankfulness, and anticipation of Jesus' second coming. Let's pray. Wow. Father, what a text. What a reminder of the things that you have shown us, the things that we got used to in the old covenant and how Jesus is better than all those things. What a glorious reminder that it is he who did all the things that those blood or that blood that was shed couldn't do. And what a glorious reminder that he is coming back. So Father, as we anticipate his first coming in celebration, and as we anticipate his second coming out of the sanctuary, we pray that our lives would be filled with awe, wonder, joy, thankfulness, and anticipation, not just during Advent, but every day of the year, reflecting on and rejoicing in the gospel of grace, knowing that Jesus has done what we could not do, that he loves us so much that he is still interceding for us. So, Father, let us live lives that reflect this to others, lives that are so filled with hope that, as 1 Peter 3.15 says, people will ask us about that hope. It's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for joining us. We pray that you are drawn closer to God and encouraged to be in the Word. If you have any questions, please reach out to us at gpcga.org. That's gpcga.org.